Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, writer Dorian Linsky. The air is getting hotter. There's a rumbling in the skies. I've been wading through the high, muddy water with the heat rising in my eyes. Every day your memory grows dimmer. It doesn't haunt me like it did before. I've been walking through the middle of nowhere, trying to get to heaven before they close the door. Thanks, Dorian. Um, why did you choose that? So two reasons. Uh-huh. One is I think it epitomises a way that Bob Dylan writes that I've come to really like, which is this sort of psychogeography of America, this kind of, some, you know, somewhat sort of apocalyptic. He's just kind of, he's always just kind of walking somewhere. His whole career is him just <laughs> walking somewhere, surrounded by stuff and observing that. And the way that, often the way he writes is that he's sort of coming back to the chorus to gather strength or the, you know, the title refrain, to gather strength before the next verse and to describe a whole other load of weird potentially depressing stuff. Um, and it's just that that's the, that's the sort of the kind of um, Dylan I like, sort of a way of, a way of seeing and interpreting uh, America or his version of it. And the other reason mm. is because this was his um, mortality, Time Out of Mind was his mortality album. And it only occurred to me years later that he was 56, <laughs> which is not that old. But at the time it was just like, oh, I guess he's dying now. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it sort of made me think of of how I saw Dylan when I was in my teens, which was this huge resentment um, towards... It was the Travelling Wilburys. And it was just like, who are these horrible old has-beens <laughs> getting in the way of, like, you know, Jesus and Mary Chain and Bomb the Bass and all the things that were exciting in music. And good. Yeah. And Proper was, and right. And it was just like... This is this is just hopeless. Get out of the way. And so I had this kind of Oedipal thing, which I think is quite good. I would have been fourteen then, and I think it is. I think it's quite good to sort of resent the older people that you're you're sort of you know told to be into. And at that point, there wasn't such a kind of. This was obviously like pre Mojo, and I think it was it was pre the sort of idea that you that you kind of had to venerate these people. Obviously, lots of people did venerate you know, Dylan. But there's obviously much more... Now there's a huge respect for almost any veteran and they're touring again mm. and everybody's sort of paying attention to them um, because they know they won't be around for much longer. But mm. then you could be quite sort of cavalier and it was just like, you know, it doesn't matter that it was sort of, you know, George Harrison <laughs> was in there. It's just like, eh, s- screw you, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the Beatles was a long time ago. Um, and then I had, as a journalist... I came as a music journalist. And again, there was this sort of resentment that you almost had to kind of shrug off the weight of the sort of older generation. You had to feel that what you were doing now, you know, had its own kind of vibrancy and legitimacy. Mm. And to me, a lot of this kind of generational resentment was poured into the figure of Dylan because the Beatles, obviously everyone revered the Beatles, but they were kind of like, they were on the kid's side. If you're a kid, Mm. you grew up with... It's like you couldn't really resent the Beatles that much because they'd made you happy when you were a kid. Mm. Whereas Dylan just represented to me this kind of stuffy, almost sort of like academic old guyness, even though he wasn't that old. Uh, and obviously that's something that I've, uh, I've moved on from. Well, you went, what, what caused the shift, do you think? There were like a lot of different things. I think it was this, 
this monolith. I think Jude Rogers made a similar point when she was on, on this podcast. It was just there was so much of it and it was so sort of <laughs> monolithic. And the barrier yeah. to entry to being a Dylan fan just seemed absurdly high. And there were a lot of other people, including older you know, artists from that generation, mm. which just felt it was, it was easier to sort of get into and find your way into. You know, if I wanted, if you wanted to get into sort of Leonard Cohen... I didn't feel like there was this huge weight of you know, scholarship and fandom and expectation. You could just like Leonard Cohen. That was fine. Whereas with Dylan, I felt like, and even when I was invited to be on the podcast, um, I was just like, oh, but I'm not, I don't, I don't know enough. Mm. It's like, I know, I've got loads of, I've got loads of Dylan albums. I've read books about him and by him. Like, there's no other artist, if you just look at the, the, the number of songs that I own by him, there's no other artist that I would kind of cringe and go, oh, I don't know enough about that. It's like, mm. I've got loads. But I always just got the feeling that there were other people that knew more and loved him more. And that can be weirdly off-putting because you yeah. feel like, well, there's no room for me in there. There's no way in. And then, but because he's so sort of, he permeates the culture, is that you find all these odd little way in, ways in, so it's just a quote and, say, Watchmen, the, the comic book mm-hmm. I was really into in the 80s. Um, and it quotes from All Along the Watchtower. That's a really important bit of it. Or you could, um, or Sisters of Mercy, I remember doing a little pun on, I think, stuck outside of Memphis in a mobile home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I thought, is that yeah. a Dylan quote? I don't know. Mm. Um, or you would hear loads, I mean, amazing number of cover versions. Yeah. The cover versions are f- such a fantastic way into him as almost like a pop presence and because 60s the, the cover version industry in the 60s it, it's sort of the opposite of reverence it was just like garage rock bands doing it's all over now baby blue or motown acts or these kind of amazing kind of motown covers of like a rolling stone or whatever and it was almost that irreverence it was the idea that you could just you could make a joke out of a dylan lyric yeah or you could cover it in a quite shameless pop way and that kind of just chipped away at that sort of monolith. And I just kept liking more and more bits of Dylan. Yeah. And they accumulate. And after a while, you just you find, of course, there's these kind of little crevices. But you go, oh, I don't hear people talk about this song so much. Or I don't, this album seems underrated. And I think as soon as you can feel a sense of personal ownership and feel like, oh, no, this is, I have my own relationship with this artist. And I don't have to kind of like follow in the tracks of, you know, have the Grill Marcus interpretation or whatever. Mm or whoever, whoever it might be. And then it's really sort of freeing. So I think it's... I think you can say that about a lot of culture. I think you could say that about Shakespeare or Dickens or certain classic mm. movies where you, they feel intimidating until you find a way in and you go, oh, no, this is, like, this is fun. Mm. It just amazes me that, that music journalists have expressed this because you're not the only person to have said this without mentioning names. <laughs> you know, I, I know uh, of various music journalists who some of whom we've asked to be on this podcast and they said, no, thanks... And often their justification has been, look, I'm not really a Dylanologist or Dylan head or Dylan nut. And we sort of said, but you wrote this thing online, this really good review of one of his albums. Yeah. If you can't talk about this, then then who can? You know, but it's maybe it is because of people like Griel Marcus that are incredibly intimidating that within that that arena you think I'm I'm not worthy. I don't know. I suppose another another thing that helped me get in was writing I had to write uh, a chapter on Masters of War yeah. and Dylan's mm-hmm. protest song when I did this but 33 Revolutions Per Minute are history protest songs and I thought well you can't you know you got to do Dylan and the hilarious thing about Dylan is that still now top of the Wikipedia page is like Bob Dylan best known for writing protest songs yeah I know over a space of about 18 months 
you know, over 50 years ago. When he got the Nobel Prize, the BBC referred to him as a folk singer. I know. In 2016. I thought, are you kidding? Which is, uh, it's kind of remarkable, but it, obviously, you know, going to that sort of period and then really... It's better the, than being known for Dead Skunk, which I know Laden Wainwright III is going to be known for. You know, because that's... The Randy Newman, it's like, you know, best known for short people. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. yeah it's so nuts, like, but it's the way of the world. Yeah. Um, and then trying to sort of construct a narrative of Dylan's relationship to the folk scene and protest songs and the movement. And his whole story is really, unlike most artists, is, is showing no interest in being liked. And which is kind of weird that the most revered... Like, Paul McCartney wants to be liked. Mm. Most artists want to be liked. And that's fine. That's a to- Bono wants to be liked. It's a totally legitimate yeah. thing. And, you know, Bruce Springsteen wants to be liked. He's likeable stuff. He does things that make people like them. Um, and with Dylan, you just think, oh, his whole thing is basically telling the people that love him to, like, piss off. Yeah. It's, like, I'm going, to, I'm going to disappoint you now again. I'm just going to do my own thing. And so then you think, oh, okay, right. So it's actually being sort of too reverent is maybe is maybe not the point. And that it, it then frees mm. you up to go, I don't like this album. Well, you said it was like Life of Brian, didn't you? You know, just fuck yeah, yeah. off. How shall we fuck off, oh, Lord? Lord. You know, absolutely. It is that kind of response, isn't it? And so, you, it's, and so it feels like you're always getting permission from him mm. to like some bits and not like others and to argue with him. And it, there's just a one, you can have quite a kind of like idiosyncratic, combative relationship with him. Yeah. And I wish I'd mm. known that. I wish I'd worked that out earlier, as opposed to thinking that he was like this kind of a face on Mount Rushmore that you mm. just had to come and sort of take a photo of and go, yeah, that's great. I think he'd probably be horrified that he's ended up with that that image. I mean, very early in his career, he said, I'm just a song and dance man. He was very keen for people to stop thinking this way about mm-hmm. him. It just didn't work. It was sort of the theme when we had uh, Sid Griffin on. He, Sid kept talking about how, you know, Dylan goes to the local basketball matches, you know, when he's visiting relatives in Minnesota and he takes his grandchildren to school. And, mm-hmm. and he kept trying to convince people that Bob was that Bob, that Dylan was a guy, mm-hmm. which, uh, which is actually, I think, it become a theme of this podcast in a way, just mm. trying to to see him as as a guy. Mm. And did, and so roundabout in between the Traveling Wilburys and Time Out of Mind, that 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 happened, that that change happened. Did you then listen to some of his music again with with those new ears and think, oh, I see, this, this is not quite as impenetrable as I thought it was? Yeah, I mean, it was probably it was probably it was later than that because Time Out of Mind, I was you know very much starting a music journalist, very immersed in dance music. Yes, wasn't I was aware of this. Mortality album, but I wasn't particularly interested in um, in mortality at that point. Well, it wasn't um, fashionable, so it was, much, was it? Even though it was very successful in '97, it wasn't fashionable. It was. I, I basically had like a. I had my my team in a sense. You know, I was definitely carving out an identity, and you're just like, well, I'm not really interested in that stuff. But I was, you know, I was accumulating, working my way through the canon, mm. I suppose, and making it my own. But in a way. Dylan was the one that it took me longest. Yeah. Because I was just like, oh, I'm going to get into the birds now. <laughs> Obviously. Oops. <laughs> I owe quite a bit to Dylan. But yes. I, I, I was also that thing that I think Bob, Bob Stanley, I think he's still genuinely of the opinion you know, that all Dylan songs are better when sung by someone who isn't Dylan. Mm. And that's, that's almost like a great way of if you feel intimidated by Dylan is you just get into all yeah. this other kind of... And I don't, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's true. I mean, sometimes it's true, sometimes it isn't. But just coming to him through as a pop, quite a song and dance man. But that's just like a really good songwriter. Mm. And why not like the... Um, do you know that gospel album, Brothers and Sisters, the, the one that Lou yes. Adler put together? Oh, yeah. 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 
and there's some incredible, not, not everything works, but some sound incredible in that way. Mm. And so sometimes, yeah, I do want to hear him in that context, but that says a lot about him as well. It says that there is a kind of like the garage rock Dylan and there's the gospel Dylan and the soul. I don't think it was a disco Dylan. No, yeah. Uh, but you know that we, we, was, you know. <laughs> we said at one point, oh, there's no real jazz Dylan, like, aside from maybe when dogs run free or whatever. But I sent you a thing I found on Spotify the other yeah. day where he was with... Wynton Marsalis. Wynton Marsalis. Right. Uh, I can't remember what was... And, and he was singing jazz. He was right. th- this mm. big jazz band live. And I'd never even heard him do that before. So he... He covers really well. the waterfront. Yeah. I mean, do you think, I, I've thought as I've grown older, and I'm not sure if, if you agree, but I've always thought that obviously within the pop idea, there's a concept of accessibility and, uh, you know, memorable tunes and things that sum up emotions mm. very instant, instantaneously. I've begun to think as I've got older that the music that takes the most work is often the music that sticks with me or that I stick with the longest. And if I do like a song immediately, mm. do you know what? It probably means I'm going to get bored of it very quickly. And Dylan's stuff has taken work. I mean, when I first heard Blonde on Blonde, I thought, oh, I know this is a classic album, but I can't quite hear it. And now I'm very, very you know, happy that it's in my life. But, yeah. it, but it, it has, to me, sounded more rewarding because I've put Work's the wrong word because it sounds too academic, but you know what I mean. But I suppose that was the problem I had. I just thought, oh, you know, it's almost, I don't want, you know, framed as as work. Yeah. But I liked, I like the way that there's, and you hear it more, I think, in um, in Brian Ferry's version than in Dylan's version, but Hard Rain. Mm. That is, a, the, in the Brian Ferry version, it's an unbelievably exciting piece mm. of music. It's mm. just got so much momentum and these amazing backing vocals and the this incredible sort of relish in the vocal. Yeah. And there's, but there's all these lyrics to process as well. And I suppose a lot of my favourite pop songs are ones where you get both. You get the instant hit mm. of, well, this is pleasurable, mm. but then there's all this stuff to sort of dig through. And I suppose that's why I sometimes like, I sometimes do like the sort of cover versions because he's, he's almost sort of underrated sometimes as just a pop melody writer because people always talk about his lyrics and his cultural importance and his huge influence, all of which is true. Sometimes it's just when you hear someone else doing a song, you go, this is just like, this is amazingly well-constructed yes, tune. I, there's a, I think it's called And the Times They Were Changing or something like that, but there's a compilation CD that I think it's got liner notes by Grill Marcus, and it's got uh, Brian Ferry's Hard Rain's Going to Fall mm. on it. It's got, of course, All on the Watchtower and Mr. Tambourine Man. Mm. It's got Jason and the yeah, Scorchers the Jason doing the Scorchers, Absolutely man. Sweet Marie, which kicks ass. Mm. I absolutely mm. fucking love it. Um, and yeah, it just sounds like really clever, literate punk. Well, there's there's one called there's one by I think called Phil Phil Flowers and the Flower Parts, right. which is like a kind of super intense, almost sort of Northern Soul version of like a Rolling Stone, where he does the kind <laughs> kind of thing that um, Kevin Rowlands does. Here. Yeah, and it's it's like it's so exciting and it's so different, and that's a kind of like. I mean, they're really fun to sing. I think that's the thing. I think because of there's this, he introduced all these words into pop that you don't normally get. And yeah. Wonderful kind of like cadences. And sometimes you hear these cover versions and even if some of them border on like, you know, kitsch or you just think, I don't think you, I don't really understand what you're singing here. There's just this, this enjoyment because it was mm. like, there were loads of people that were like, I didn't get to sing lines like this normally. Mm. Yeah. But then I thought that, I always thought that was part of the stuff that Dylan was writing very quickly, you know, this kind of amazing sort of explosion of creativity mm. around the mid-60s. And I've always thought, 
I'm sure some of this stuff he just like, just thinks it sounds cool. Like yeah. there's no way with the real kind of when the the really sort of torrential songs. Mm-hmm. There's no way that every single line here is kind of weighted like a line of poetry. Like sometimes it's just I just think I like this reference. I think this sounds cool, and mm-hmm. I like that kind of um, sense of absorbing so much that's going on. And I've always liked these um, records that introduce you to other things. Mm-hmm. And I think some of them can be quite ostentatious. I think the Smith's an example of this. And mm-hmm. you would learn about you know novels or films or plays or whatever through a Smith's lyric. And with Dylan, there's so much of that, but, it, but there's almost so much of it that it's not like, oh, this is the song that talks about that. It's like within this song, there's all these kind of references, some of which people don't discover till years later, do they? And it's like this sort of, this brilliant collage, which, again, I suppose it's about finding, like, the fun in it, and as opposed to thinking, oh, my, how am I going to unpack the meaning of this? Yeah. It's like so much of the energy was him just absorbing this, that, and the other. Like mm. When he writes in, in Chronicles about the uh, Pirate Jenny and the Black Freighter, mm. it's an amazing piece of writing because you just get this feeling of him just going out one night, seeing this show, and being like, oh, Jesus, I didn't know you could do that. And he does, and, and then mm. instantly goes and writes songs like, you know, Hard Rain, where the excitement just goes straight from, of being a fan, goes straight into being a writer. And, and I kind of feel that that's, that's the enjoyment I get from him is the kind of where's where's this leading me how much is how much is he managed to pack into this song you said that um you you know Grio marcus's work and mm-hmm. all the various other people but mm-hmm. you haven't actually written that much about dylan yourself aside from that chapter i know you wrote that uh, yeah. terrific <clears throat> article about dylan oh, rediscovering in, himself in, yeah. in, in the 80s along with johnny oh Gash. yeah the kind of writer's block one yeah, yeah that Ooh. really intrigued me um and i've done You've done bits around him. I did a feature on um, on that Brothers and Sisters gospel album because I was really intrigued by that. I spoke to Mary Clayton and Lou Adler, who told the most. All the, most of the Dylan stories I hear of Dylan now, it's, they all seem to <laughs> seem quite consistent in yeah. what he's like. Right. And I was like, so did you know, you know, Dylan? Because Lou Adler, quite a you know big figure through the Mamas and Papas and Monterey mm. and making movies and stuff. And he goes, oh no, never actually met then. He goes, but my son plays football with his son whatever says oh so you've met now and he goes no he goes <laughs> i go to collect my son and then just like the, the maid who or whoever works with him comes to the door and you just think wouldn't anybody else apart from dylan just be like oh so your dad's lou adler shows you also how old they are when they've had kids yeah. um uh you would you would go to the door wouldn't you so I quite like these sort of these tidbits that even now these you know these other quite big figures um, from that era are still just like he's kind of he's weird <laughs> like he's socially <laughs> well, yeah, weird. Yeah. Would you like to meet him? Would you like to interview him? I mean, you can't say no because of course, of course you would, but I don't know whether you'd get much. I don't know what what you'd get. No, there are there are certain people where you think, of course, if someone said you want to interview Mick Jagger, I'd go yes, but would I? Would I get much out of somebody who is such a, a polished pro and reveals yeah. so little? Yeah. But but I just kept kept hearing stories of of just sort of of Dylan just being so odd, socially odd. Yeah. And I find that I find that really just fascinating that he seems to he sort of miss or ignore so many 
social cues. And you yeah. just there's so many people you just hear about, and they go, "Oh, well, he can be, a, you know, intimidating in public, but in person, he's just like a like a normal guy." Yeah. And I've never, I don't really hear stories like that about Dylan. None of them seem like he's a normal guy. He does some stuff that is normal. Yeah, but, I mean, the the stories that I've heard are, are usually it goes much better when they're talking about something. Else, I remember. I think it yeah. was Vim Vendors was talking about. He was at a dinner party, and just saw Bob Dylan at the end of the table, and he ordered a large pot of tea and just sat there, waiting for someone to talk to him. And, and he went over, and they had a great conversation about the films of Fassbinder, you know. But but it was because they were talking about something that that didn't touch either of their their radars really. That he was mm. able to to free himself and talk about. Well, that. in a way, of course, when you say, "Would you like to interview him?" Because if you have to interview him, you you would have to come back with some kind of a profile of Bob Dylan. Yeah. Whereas you sort of think, well, actually, if you just, in the spirit of that Pirate Jenny chapter, if you just found something one of his lyrics that you were really into, if you yeah. found a novelist that you agreed, mm. and you just like, let's just talk about that. Let's talk about you know, this sort of influence or this interest we have in common. That would be great, but, you know, my editor would probably be... <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be a publishable interview. Yeah, no, could... sure. Why didn't, why didn't you ask him about Blood in the Wind? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, or, or literally anything other than this this one writer you've spent an hour yeah. talking about. Oh, we get that as podcasts. We have great chats, and then someone on Twitter would say, why didn't you ask him about this? I don't know, just having a good conversation, sorry, you know. You've not to date seen him live, is that correct? No, because even the praise... Is often uh, tends to be sort of off-putting because you know I know he's a bit hit and miss, but I've read five-star reviews of him, which just make the show sound terrible. They go, "Well, of course, you know, you can't really." Yeah, they go, "Well, you can't recognise the songs, and uh, his voice is quite weird." And but you know, it's just you've just got to be there. And I thought that is you haven't sold me on this. No. And there is a way of this is the this is the the sort of thing that used to put me off many years ago mm. was there was a kind of initiate's way of writing about him. And I think that's changed because I think there's lots of good writers who I think are coming at from a similar point of me, maybe generationally, where it's just like they haven't sort of necessarily grown up with him as this great sort of genius. Mm. So you can be more irreverent or you can, you can find this sort of fresher angles. But I just kept reading these five-star reviews, which made it seem like, well, I'm not, I haven't passed the, I don't have the necessary qualifications to enjoy the show. But he is, um, and, and I've never been asked to review him, unfortunately. Oh, really? Probably because I haven't got necessary qualifications. Uh, so but that's exactly the sort of person who should be reviewed. Right, I think yeah. they, should, they should sort of mm. sp- spread it out, get a lot of different writers uh, covering him. Um, but he's playing with Neil Young, and I bought tickets for that because I feel like either he will be a revelation or I'll still enjoy Neil Young. Yeah. Like, I kind of figure, okay, that's that's going to work. Because and it, it, I do feel like, you know, I have, to, I have to see it, but it's such an odd proposition. If you want to see Leonard Cohen on his kind of final tours, mm. it was like it's three hours of the best of Leonard Cohen performed brilliantly mm-hmm. with, a, with a great deal of charm and grace and talking to the audience. And it's like anybody hearing about that would be like, that sounds, who has any interest in Leonard Cohen would be like, that sounds brilliant. Um, whereas Dylan, there's all these sort of caveats. And it's sometimes you're like, you're about to, you know, you're about to spend 70 quid and you go, I, I don't know. But I, I mean, I'm obviously, obviously intrigued. But yeah, because it's so because it's so different. And I think Neil Young manages to walk a good line, actually, when he he's not giving everyone the best of Neil Young. But you know there's always going to be enough, a few of those songs in the set, and performed really well. And yeah. even a more kind of ornery Neil Young set 
is going to have those moments of mm. kind of where even a casual fan is just going to go, yes, this is what I came for, even if yeah. he then kind of meanders off. He always so did that really well. I saw Neil Young in Finsbury Park in 93 with uh, Booker T and the MGs, and there were about two or three songs in there that nobody had heard of, mm. apart from the, the, uh, the avid bootleg collectors. But, yeah, there was The Needle and the Damage done, done how everyone wanted to hear it, and there was Southern Man done exactly how everyone wanted yeah, to hear yeah. it, and Pearl Jam came on at the end, they did Rockin' in the Free World, and it ticked all the boxes, and you're right, and he absolutely knew how to walk that line, but he always has, I think. And I, and I suppose, you know, with, with Dylan, the whole point is, like, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be who he is if he was sort of cannily, yeah. you know, doing a kind of one-for-you, one-for-me vibe, and just talking to the, talking to the audience. Yeah. Um... It's like that, you know, he is, he is what he is. So it's sort of like, even in, even in my head, I've just got this idea of like, Dylan the Glastonbury, right, this is what you should play, you know. And I'm not mm. saying, you're including some more recent stuff, mm. I'm not saying you've just got to do like, you know, the best of Bob Dylan volume one. Say thank you for coming. <laughs> say, say something nice about Glastonbury Festival. Um, but that will never, that will never happen. But I suppose there are some people where you think that if you go and see them live, they will give you most of what you want, most of what you like about this artist. Whereas actually most of what I like about Bob Dylan is quite a kind of, it's sort of a more private thing. And I want to go off and pursue, you know, mm. and sometimes you're just like, I'm really into New Morning now. Yeah. Or sometimes like, I'm really more into like, I'm kind of into the Oh Mercy and then into the 90s. And, and there's just no way that any live show is going to give you what you is going to be able to cover that ground and give you what you're into at any particular time no. i suppose the warning was that was that in 66 which is in in the clips in no direction home when that fan says to him can i have an autograph and he says if you needed an autograph i'd give it to you <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean yeah, i think that's what he's saying to his concert audiences now if you if you needed me to do this i would but you, know, you don't need no, it you don't need yeah. it Getting into Dylan, you, you mentioned books, um, and we talked. Grail Marx's name was mentioned. Have you have mm. you read um, a, a great deal of Dylan books? I read some because I needed some for for you know for research. So mm. I read like I really like. I know it's quite. I think maybe it's the first one. I really like Anthony Scaduto's mm. biography because it's pretty juicy. It's maybe I don't know how reliable all the the sourcing is, like on reflection. <laughs> I was rereading my chapter on the way here because I was going, what did I actually write about Bob Dylan? Mm. And there were some quotes from the Scudutu book, and I'm like, I'm not 100% sure that this was said. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that that was just a great kind what, of... What was that particular thing you're thinking of? There were just a couple of quotes from Dylan which just sounded too perfect. Mm. And, I, and basically people just played a lot more fast and loose back in the... Um, back in the 70s. But what I liked about it, I suppose, was that I can't remember when it came out, but it wasn't that long into his career and it still had this kind of mm. like he was he was alive. Early 70s, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And he's somebody who had already had like, you know, some bumps along the road and mm. some, you know, and backlashes. And there was a kind of brilliant, and a lot of the people were still sort of, obviously, still around. I mean, hardly anyone had, had died that knew him. Um, and so there's this brilliant sort of gossipy energy to him, to that book, which obviously later on they become more um, they become more reverent and perhaps more scrupulously <laughs> researched. So I've also read, you know, like the Clinton Halen, uh, you know, song by song mm -hmm. ones. 
But I mean, Graham Marcus, I love because I think he's he thinks he's the closer you get to thinking like Dylan. Yeah. Where mm-hmm. it's that kind of mm. the digressions, the like, where you, you follow a thought and it goes here and it goes there and it goes there. And yeah. like a Rolling Stone. I'm not sure what's his book actually called, Like a Rolling Stone. Yeah, there is about. one. Yeah, it's called Like a Rolling Stone. It's yeah. just about Like a Rolling Stone. Yeah. And that was one of the things that inspired me to write my Brota Songs book because I was like, wow, he's written a whole book. I mean, quite a slim one. Yeah. A whole book about one song. Mm. And through that song, he's able to talk about, you know, the politics. He's able to a bit of memoir. There's, I think, there's one thing he is talking about, like, Ode to Billy Joe. Mm-hmm. Can't remember what his connection was there, but there's mm. a wonderful bit of writing about that. Uh, and you just got, it was about so much more than that song, but it always came back to that song. Yeah. And I just think he is the perfect writer for Bob Dylan because he's willing to go to these unexpected places. Mm-hmm. And I think he's willing to follow these kind of breadcrumb trails. And I think you have to have that kind of, there's obviously a place for the kind of rigorous scholarship, but I think it's exciting if you have that, that kind of free, yeah, freewheeling mind. Mm. where you just go, actually, I can go off and dig up some bit of history uh, and it's going to be relevant because virtually everything, if you want it to be, can be relevant to Bob Dylan. You yeah. can dig up something about kind of like a mining disaster or a flood and and just go, well, this kind of, this took place in this town which appears in the lyric, the third verse of whatever. And because Dylan's whole project just seems to be this big, weird, it's a Graham Marcus phrase, isn't it? The old weird America. Yeah. It, it's like you can you can write about everything by writing about Dylan. I think he does that mm. absolutely. And when you were choosing uh, to write a whole book about about protest songs, and you decided there's going to be mm. one Dylan in there, you chose Masters of War. How did you, how did you make that choice over some of the others? That's a good point. I wonder if I can remember that why I did that. Because I, 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 I suppose you could say "Blowing in the Wind," "Times Are Changing," a, a couple of others are the big monolithic protest songs with a capital P, aren't they? Yeah, I think... Well, I mean, obviously, with that format is that I choose a song for the, you know, that was going to be at the head of the chapter. But within mm. that, I would talk about mm. other songs, the artist, adjacent artists. Mm-hmm. So I get to write about, you know, Phil Oakes, um, Joan Baez. So it was... I suppose the reason I chose it as the main one was because it's so... It felt truer to what he was like than blowing in the wind, which is kind of... Blowing in the is quite kind of sweet and thoughtful. It's very approachable. Peter, Paul and Mary yeah. can do blowing in the wind, and it, it, that kind of makes sense. It's also quite woolly, and I don't mean that quite as critically as it sounds, but, but Masters of War is a finger-pointing song in every, every possible but way that, that means. Yeah, no, that's it. it. it and it's, it's, it's ugly, too. I yeah. mean, it's, there's some ugly truths and some ugly words and it's yeah, I hope that you it, die yeah <laughs> like that. that but it also has that you know because it's from the melody of Nottingham Town yeah and it does have that kind of the darkness and violence of a lot of the folk material that he was drawing on and there's just something kind of uncanny and savage about it and I also thought that he got to something that's really true about um, anti-war sentiment is that if you're angry enough, you th- you have violent thoughts, but they're aimed at the people, you know, who are waging war. So it's not... There's a kind of sweet passive. It was more of a Pete Seeger... It's a temperament thing as well, mm. is that Pete Seeger's, you know, happy place was kind of sweet reason and going, come on, guys. And Bob Dylan could do that sort of song, but that wasn't really him. His, he had more kind of like... 
anger and venom. And so Master War felt like only he could have done that. I don't think any other protest singers at that point, you know, could have written that song or indeed, you know, sung that song in the same way. Even like the cover versions of Master War, I think they're lacking that kind of like, almost like you know, the spittle of it. Yes, yeah. There's a Stable Singers cover of it. Mm, uh, yeah, which, which, is, which is actually... Wonderful. But... It, it's wonderful because you think, oh, these, these kind of sweet, beautiful mm. people are singing this angry song. They're not singing it with anger. They're actually kind of singing it almost with reason. Mm. And it's, it's got a... It does. It's it's totally different. But, but his it, version has the bile of that that mm. angry young man, and it preempts the criticism by by saying, you know, there's one thing I know, though I'm younger yeah. than you. Yeah, yeah. Even yeah. Jesus would never forgive what you do. And it's 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 like I mean, even today we have Greta Thunberg being picked on by mm. by various people for being young and angry. Yeah, yeah. You know, mm. and back then Dylan was preempting it and saying, you might say I'm young, you might say I'm unlearned. I know what you're going to say, but believe me, I know this. I, th- I think Real Marcus Lyon is, is, is it gives the listener or anyone performing it permission to go that far. Yeah, and I and I think it, I think it really does. It says, okay, protest song doesn't have to be reasonable. So there's a sentiment in it that's sort of, you know, that the kind of you you can get in some kind of in punk or hip hop. Mm. It's like you're saying something really violent and outrageous. Yeah, um, and you're not trying to just get everybody together to work it out. And I thought that was a really important emotion that he introduced. But I think the kind of his emotion... It's interesting that, you know, that Sam Cooke, he heard Blown in the Wind. Yeah. Mm. And that's change is going to come. And that's a very Sam Cooke way of looking at the world. Yeah. The change is going to come. Where Masters of War is more a kind of Nina Simone <laughs> way of yeah, looking at yeah, things. Yeah. Which is just like, I'm, you know, I'm fucking furious. And those are two really very, very different modes, really important. If you're talking about history of process music and yeah. 60s activism, mm. as it's just, you know, it's the kind of Martin V. Malcolm yes. kind of, I mean, that mm. is a bit simplistic, but that idea. Um, and I just feel that Dylan was very much more on one side than the other, mm. even though obviously, as, as we know, you know, he then decided he wasn't going to write any, hardly any more protest songs. Yeah. But I mean, even that said, I, I all whenever I listen to "Blowing in the Wind," I wish it moved me like "A Change Is Going to Come" does. Mm. There's there's something about "A Change Is Going to Come" which gets me every single time on an emotional level, mm. which "Blowing in the Wind" never does. And they're so similar in and, so many ways. And I yeah, and time the times they are changing is better. Yes, I agree because it's got that sort of post pirate Jenny mm. apocalyptic imagery, and he's it's that it's that sudden thing in his writing. With that kind, with that imagery, which you you get in that um, trying to get to heaven as well. Yeah, I mean this is this is sort of Dylan's territory. It's kind of it's hard rain and storms and scorched earth, and there's something quite scary about times they are changing. If you if you hear it in a certain way, yeah. dare we say biblical? Yeah, yeah, biblical. Yeah. Yeah. I think what, right. wasn't his first um, theme time radio thing was was weather. Weather, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, because I mean you could just listen to Dylan. He, there's a reference to weather in so many. Just yeah, every I mean, second on the tracks song. alone. I mean, it's just it's so much to do with weather. But also that you you make the point. I think about times that are changing, and I think it's a good one that when he wrote it and was initially performing it, it was pre JFK by a matter of weeks, mm. and very suddenly it became an anthem for that era without him actually changing anything. He was doing it as the first song in his set, and then he carried on in this post November 
1963 world, and it took on a whole new meaning. Well, one of the, the fun things about writing about music is, that, or writing about anything really, is that when you when you dig into stuff, you get to throw aside these kind of bits of received wisdom. Mm. So I'm, I'm not plugging my new book, but I have just written a book about 1984, mm. and even just finding out that <clears throat> the title of 1984 is not 1948, flipped. It's yeah. just not. There's no evidence for that. It doesn't make any sense. And that's something I'd, I'd known, in inverted commas, for years. And it was just great to be like, oh, okay, that's not true. Mm. And it's like hard rain is going to come. I'd always heard that as a song about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm. It's not. He, he wrote it before. Mm. And so that's what makes it amazing, is that he's writing these songs before the event that then seems to come to inform everyone's yeah. reception of the song. And that's just basically having your antennae tuned to... Sort of what the '60s was going to be, yes. As opposed to what you wanted it to be, it was like, yeah, this is this is kind of what it's going to be. Well, that got him the spokesman of a generation tag because he was foolish enough to have the insight to see these <laughs> things before they happened, you know, and then wrote about them. So no wonder people thought he was some kind of you know doom laden prophet. But that's the mad thing is like, can you? I mean, nothing. Nobody has that weight of expectation on them now. No, it is a. Mm. I opened that chapter on him with. Um, with Ronnie Gilbert from The Weavers doing her introduction. And it's a really astute introduction. It's going like, you know, it's not these individual geniuses that make the time. It's, it's like it's the craving on the part of the public and the audience mm. that elevates them to that status. And they're just going, this is the person you've been waiting for. And that's terrifying. And there's, yeah. that's in such an absurd, intense way of expectation. Mm. And I sympathise both with the people that wanted him to be that and with the man that really did not want to be that. Yeah, I remember when he was, you know, awarded the Nobel, and uh, people still couldn't believe that there's, there's this uh, expectation that you should be grateful for that title, and I guess a lot of people would be grateful for that title. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, Philip Roth mm. apparently desperately wanted yeah. to win the Nobel Prize for literature, but Bob Dylan kind of desperately didn't. I think want to you know, he didn't want to be put through that the mill of the you know uh, to be ground into sort of dust by the the ceremony. But it's weird because there's no there's really no danger of that now. Like I just I don't know I, I don't want to be too armchair psychologist about it. But it's almost like when you're reading about what he was saying about that initial expectation and just like saying that the audience is like a lynch mob and mm. the running away and the, mm. and then the delight in disappointing and angering people. It's, it always seems to me like this sort of primal trauma and that anything that reminds him of that just sort of freaks him out. But at this age, of course, you can, it's just a Nobel Prize ceremony. Just go up, do it. It's fine. Just say thanks. It's really nice. Wasn't asking for it. But, but he doesn't cool. seem to be able to to do that. <laughs> he can't you know, it's just not part of his DNA. Because yeah. I guess it would be he would feel pinned down. Or I mean, I can only guess because most of us like it when people say nice things about us and you've changed our life for the yeah, better yeah, and things yeah. like that. But. Well, my kind of my sort of theory, I suppose, was that he, what he was trying to get to. The point he was trying to get to was where he was free from narrative. And there were all these narratives imposed on him, and and there were, and that you know comes through that each each album in the '60s is trying to do something with the narrative, you know whether it's like I'm going to do country music now, mm. or I'm going to make this mad messy album that's going to annoy everyone, <laughs> um, or you know this is 
I'm back now, or you know, and he kind of passed through all these sort of stages, and now his career is the equivalent of like one of those songs where he's just walking, walking and rolling on, and you know, and I thought at this point it's like it's you, that he would be free of that sense that he could be pinned down. That he's literally, you know, if he's, he's done his standards albums and he's done a Christmas album mm. and he's been on a tour for like 30 years. And, and surely now he's done enough that even a Nobel Prize is not going to kind of manacle him. But he still seems to feel that it might or... I don't know what this kind yeah, of this I always, phobia is. I, I go back to the a song that's only been released now for about five years, but he wrote in 1967, and it was an old lyric that they, they dug up for that T-Bone Burnett Lost on the River album. Mm. Uh, and the lyrics go, I knew that I was young enough, and I knew there was nothing to it. I'd already seen it done enough, and I knew there was nothing to it. And there's a kind of, there's an element in there which exists nowhere else in his writing which says, I decided when I was a young man that I could do this shit. Hmm. And I could do it really, really well. Because, as you say, for the rest of his career, it's all been kind of, oh, I don't, you know, I, I shrug off the mantle that I've been given. I never wanted this. Mm-hmm. But there's an element of him that I think maybe did and maybe could do it and knew it. But also, nothing to it has a double meaning like all his things. Yeah. Like, yeah. there really is, what I'm doing is is nothing mm. in, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. But there's that, there's like that, that song and dance thing you quoted. It's yeah. like, I mean, you look at his arrival in New York... And he was incredibly ambitious and canny mm-hmm. and he cultivates all the right friendships and then chucks some of them away, you know, when they've served their purpose. He is like a lot of young artists, hugely ambitious and hugely ruthless. Yeah. And he, you know, and he really wants to make uh, this sort of, he really wants to sort of make great art. You don't write lyrics like that mm-hmm. if you're not, if you just think, I'm just some guy. Yeah, I yeah. just, you know, with my guitar. <laughs> yeah, it was like no, but his whole shtick was always like the first time he ever plays "Blowing in the Wind," he's like, "This ain't a protest song." He goes, "Oh, I've just been traveling around the country, you know, like Woody Guthrie, like a kind of like a happy hobo." And so, right from the his, his whole thing was talking down what he did yeah. and making light of every expectation or every bit of praise. And because he's been doing that so long, it becomes so hard. You know, if I was, I don't know, I'd have to go back to some Dylan biographies to see what they sort of conclude. Mm. But if you're trying to write a biography, working out what he actually thinks of what he does is so difficult Mm. because virtually any other artist, you know, there's some interviews, these pivotal interviews where they really reveal a great deal. And maybe they're later on in their career and looking back, they go, oh, well, at the time I was kind of, you know, bullshitting a bit, but here... You know, it's like Lennon's Rolling Stone interview. Yes. And he's obviously saying a lot of stuff there that he did not say at the height of the Beatles. Yeah. But with Dylan, it, there's very little that you can go, oh, this is what he really thinks. Mm. And so, you know, you must think, well, why, you know, why not just build your own... <laughs> why not build your own version of him? Because that's sort of what he's telling you to do and just go, well, I'm not going to... I'm not going to tell you what this is about. I'm not going to tell you what I think. I'm not going to tell you what I want. So, you know, why not make your own? Is It Rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Sweet Martha Suite at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guys. We're on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. Music is by Sam Hare. Ring them bells for the blind and the deaf. Ring them bells for all of us who are left. 
Ring them bells for the chosen few who will judge the many when the game is through. <laughs>